This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett, and joining me today is a Trek novelist extraordinaire. It's Dr. Una McCormack. Hi, Una. Or do you prefer to go by number one these days? <laughs> yeah, well, I was quite pleased with extraordinaire, actually. I was, uh, I, I quite like that. Yes, I, I do like going as uh, number one these days and always have done. Yes, that was quite exciting. Did you know that was coming? Because I know you'd had some of the scripts for the Tilly novel you were writing earlier in the season, but that was right towards the end. I think it was maybe in the final episode, wasn't it? Was that something that you knew was coming down the line or was that as much of a surprise to you as maybe it was to the viewers at home? Absolutely didn't know it was coming. I hadn't got a clue. So uh, yes, it was just, it was, oh, hang on a minute. That's me. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) That must be quite a thrilling experience because I know some people some uh, fans have found themselves like their names working their way into some of the Trek novels because I know some of the Star Trek novelists I'm not sure whether this is something that you've ever done but some of them I know they'll they'll work in the names of uh, fans that they've been interacting with on social media or whatever Um, but actually having a you know your name pop up on screen and and knowing that there's that kind of link there and there's that kind of rationale behind it um, that's sort of something else. That's the next level. I think it had been it had been put in the novels originally. So uh, uh, certainly David Mack, I think, had 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 called number one Una, uh, and then it was it was picked up from that. Uh, and I know I've done it. I've done it. I've done it with mates, and uh, I know Jim Swallow has done it with friends. Does it with me? In fact, I think there's a Captain McCormack somewhere in one of his books. And it's very common to kind of do a. a I know lots of people do this or, or auction off a bit parts or, uh, you know, it's a charity auction uh, right. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. it happens quite a lot. But to get on screen, because, you know, we all we all say, oh, with Doctor Who, we go, oh, there's no such thing as canon. But yeah, if there was a if there was a McCormack suddenly in Doctor Who, it'd be like this canonical. You know? <laughs> so, right. so absolutely thrilling. Yeah, I was I was chuffed a bit and a really cool character as well. Fantastic character. I mean, you know, an iconic character and, and one that's been there from, you know, the very start. Basically. Exactly. I yeah. Mean... There's, there's me inscribed right into the start of Trek history. So <laughs> the women have always there. been there. Yeah. You're, you're there for good now. You're right. You, you know, um, it's going back in time and, and changing the past. And, you know, like you say, it's, it's part of canon now. 
And it's interesting that you should bring up Doctor Who because coincidentally, that is the topic that we're here to talk about today. Um, Una and I met what, last October, I guess it was, at the um, Star Trek convention in Birmingham, and we were talking about um, what we might like to talk about. And then I think it was on the way, I was on my way home. I must have been staying later than you um, that final evening. And I noticed because I missed seeing it, but the new Doctor Who episode about Rosa Parks was airing and I saw that you were tweeting about it and everyone was tweeting about it because it was the, I guess, probably the first sort of great episode maybe of that you know latest iteration of Doctor Who or certainly the, the first one that kind of seemed to be getting that kind of response online. And that's what suddenly made me think, I know what we should talk about because I knew you'd written uh, Star Trek novels, obviously, and I knew you'd written Doctor Who novels as well. And I thought, well, this is clearly the perfect person to... Um, come and, and, and talk about the kind of links between these two franchises, because not only do they have in common this sort of, um, I suppose, sort of basic uh, liberal um, kind of positive uh, forward thinking kind of outlook. They're both sort of social justice warrior shows one way or another, we might say. But they, of course, also spring both of them out of pretty much exactly the same time. I mean, Doctor Who was 63. I think Star Trek was 66. So they're both really coming out of that kind of mid 60s uh, period, but obviously on opposite sides of the Atlantic. So from different cultures, but the same kind of global experience in a sense and they both lasted I mean unlike pretty much every other show they're the two that have really stood the test of time so I suppose they they do have a lot in common um, but at the same time there are many things that are very different about them and, and you must be familiar with that you know having worked in both those universes as a writer the things that are unique to Trek or unique to Doctor Who that, that you know what are the kind of parallels and what are the uh, differences when you're playing in those different sandboxes well, I think that the, I think certainly the the roots of them in the sixties are really really interesting because you've got uh, uh, the the although they're they're pretty much simultaneous. Uh, Doctor Who's a little bit older, a uh, few years older. Uh, they're coming out of two different traditions of science fiction. Um, it's obviously Doctor Who has got a lot in, uh, owes a lot to H. G. Wells to things like the Time Machine, um, the Edwardian aspects of his the, what he's sort of wearing. He's a kind of gentleman amateur explorer you can you can see it's coming from this british tradition of science fiction whereas uh, star trek is it's it's brash it's bold it's uh, uh it's uh, the the government in space it's all about um american uh it's that kind of confidence post-war confidence in american culture uh can do this we can win wars we can explore we can put a man on the moon though of course he's he's not on the moon when uh, uh star trek starts of course so although they're, they're they're very close to each other in time um they're coming from these two quite separate traditions and i think one is uh obviously a, a nation that's uh at its peak uh, the United States in the 50s and 60s, and the other is a little bit more post-imperial, Suez has happened, a little bit more cynical perhaps about what authority has to say. You know, the doctor the, the doctor is patrician, but he's, he's always speaking uh, for the underdog. Uh, you know, he's mistrustful of big government. He, he doesn't like it. He pushes against it. So there's always these slightly different flavours, I think. And of course, one's made in, in black and white. We chucked half of it away. 
that's very British again. And the other is in, you know, glorious colour and uh, all of it still exists. So uh, so uh, lots of parallels, but lots of differences as well. Uh, it's notable, I think, particularly, you know, um, everybody in Star Trek is in uniform. They're responding to a chain of command and all of these sorts of things. Not in Doctor Who, not not even when Pertwee's part of unit, I think, do we get that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and quite the opposite, in fact, we get him railing against against bureaucracy, against government, against authority. So um, similar but different. Absolutely. I mean, yes, I, I think you're absolutely right. And it's interesting to think about the Doctor as sort of coming out of that uh, time frame. I mean, he is very much, I mean, although he always travels with a companion or two, he is very much sort of, um, a, well, he's an outcast, I suppose, isn't he? He's a sort of societal outcast in terms of his own people. He's not kind of um, someone who likes to play by the rules. He he probably, I mean, I've seen memes of, you know, David Tennant's doctor in a Starfleet captain's uniform. He's probably not someone who's going to get on very well with that kind of authority structure and that hierarchy and so on. Although they did do, I think, a few years ago, a crossover comic, didn't they? I think with um, Matt Smith's doctor and the crew of the Enterprise uh, under Captain Picard. And they were kind of teaming up to fight a sort of combined uh, effort from the Borg and the Cybermen joining forces. Uh, I, I think when of, it uh, comes to totalitarian threats, you know, we, even the centrists and the radicals can uh, get together, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or you'd, li- you'd like to hope so anyway, or not as the case may be. But uh, I think if we're confronted with the Dalek army, uh, we know which uh, which side we need to be on. And it's, it's broadly Starfleet and the anarchists. Well, let's... Yeah, let's hope so. Absolutely. I mean, there are interesting kind of parallels, you know, the the, the Cybermen and the Borg, obviously. Um, th- th- there's an obvious one, these two quite similar, uh, the, these like big foes um, that are this kind of, you know, cybernetic. I mean, the Cybermen are people inside, so they are very similar to the Borg. Um, oh, completely. Yes, sense. I think they're, um, I think that, I think the Cybermen are one of the, uh, one of the earliest examples of that. I mean, obviously we'd have robots and, you know, we'd, you know, obviously there'd have been mechanical men and this kind of thing, but this idea of a sort of, um, augmented human, it's only, it's only sort of coming out in the sixties, isn't it? I think you get the, um, the Cybernauts on the Avengers or something, but the Cybermen are, are really something quite, um, and and they're they're just guys with a metal face that are kind of hitting things. But the Cybermen are um uh you know, they're much the those first um, Cybermen in uh, in Tenth Planet are absolutely terrifying. Even when you look at them through the the grainy snow and this kind of thing, and uh, it was an interesting thing the show did to kind of go back to that and see that. The, those episodes, those last Capaldi episodes, are, are quite terrifying. They're really, really horrific. They get the body horror of it. Uh, and the Borg again. I think when you see that done to um, Picard, that's the that's the real horror in in Star Trek, isn't it? That you you get this man who is the most humane man, the most humanist of men, the most the the man who celebrates um, compassion, mercy individualism diversity to see even that overthrown is um is horrific uh, and then to see him sort of struggle back from it i think as well so um yeah lots in common between those i th- yeah the borg and the cybermen are, are sort of exactly the same thing yeah they've got that sort of element in common of almost a kind of existential crisis that goes along with the kind of like you say the body horror and so on in that there's always this sort of question you know can someone be pulled back and obviously in star trek you know with picard we did see him being pulled back although we saw the kind of trauma that that entailed uh i guess with seven of nine we saw that in a big way and i think arguably you know by the time you get to later voyager it sort of seems a bit too easy to pull people back because there's that episode where janeway and 
Tuvok, I think it's some of her crew anyway, sort of get themselves assimilated and then de-assimilated. Um, it, it's maybe slightly kind of trivializes that, that, that line in some ways. Um, I can't remember whether in, in Doctor Who, whether has there ever been someone who came back from being a Cyberman? I know that the, um, What's his name? This is it shows you I'm, I'm more of a, a Trekkie than a, a Doctor Who fan. Uh, the um, uh, Lethbridge Stewart. That's what I was looking for. The Brigadier. The that's, Brigadier. I, I was yeah. racking my. I was going through <laughs> ranks in my head, thinking Colonel, General. General no, it's not Major, that. What, it, <laughs> what, it, what is this kind of? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, not exactly. You know, yeah, subaltern. I yeah. don't know. Um, no, the Brigadier. Yes, the Brigadier ends up as a spoilers by the way, um, ends up as a Cyberman, but is a kind of good Cyberman and his kind of essential goodness carries through. But I don't think he ever manages to come back to being who he was. And with Bill, I think that was similarly an element of her story was it sort of, it felt like, was she going to be brought back to being herself? But she never quite was. She sort of ended up being rescued in this rather strange way where her consciousness was kind of salvaged in some way. But physically, it seemed like it was a one-way process. And that's a kind of familiar uh, trope, uh, I think, in Stephen Moffat stories, isn't it? I think um, I think one of the big differences between Russell T. Davis stories and Stephen Moffat stories is that in, in Russell T. Davis stories, death is death, lads, okay? <laughs> that's it. You know, the undiscovered country from which no man returns or whatever it is. Um, but whereas uh, you always see this this attempt to kind of dodge death or come back from death in Stephen Moffat, whether it's uploading somebody to the library or, um, uh, you know, um, uh, again, downloading Bill's consciousness into whatever the, the fudge is. But um, the, the, the only... Or Clara other... living in that yeah. sort of half second or whatever it is between heartbeats. That exactly that. There's that. a sort of hesitation over death. I think Amy and Rory dodge death as well, don't they? There's a there's a character that does sort of resist cyberizing, and that's Yvonne Hartman. Um, I did my duty for King and Co- for Queen and Country. I do, did my duty for Queen and Country. She's a sort of she's the person heading up Torchwood in the um, the Russell T Davis series, and uh, uh, she she ends up cyberized, but something of her uh, resists and keeps on fighting against it. it's a very memorable moment you know she's you realize it's that this faceless um you know the silver face is the the still personhood behind it right. and it's it's although she's um been a, a nationalist and a royalist and has made terrible decisions that have led to this the core of what was decent is this sort of um uh insistence on a on a set of values and that that gives her courage and fearlessness and she fights still to protect and that sort of core of identity is still there even though the body has been colonized and destroyed and obliterated so yeah uh, you're exactly right a kind of existential threat to values uh, and to selfhood uh, to this idea of um, a, a sort of uh, um, coherent self I guess uh, and to see it with somebody like Picard who it's so so sorted. <laughs> to see that kind of broken down is is extremely affecting. I think. Well, it's interesting thinking about that. I mean, on the face of it, you might say that Doctor Who is. I mean, it's it, it's a show that is sort of explicitly aimed at children. Although obviously a lot of adults watch it as well. Compared to Star Trek, which I suppose is aimed at adults, but a lot of children watch it as well. Maybe it it feels like it's lighter. It relies a lot more on comedy and humour and kind of incongruity and so on. But in some ways, I think it goes a lot bleaker than Star Trek often does. And actually, these characters who end up trapped in these kind of horrific uh, uh, sort of futuristic technologies one way or another. I mean, there's also, I think, the first time that Clara is introduced in, I mean, we're, I'm 
I'm talking conspicuously more about new Doctor Who because I have to say my experience with Doctor Who, I, I, I got into it really with the Revival series and I have gone back and watched, you know, a handful of the classic episodes to try and sort of plug those gaps but there's so much there uh, that I've only really dipped my toe in those waters. So it may be that as much as I'm sort of looking at, you know, how has Doctor Who influenced Star Trek over the years and the Borg um, uh, being influenced by the Cybermen, which I, I imagine there must have at least been some awareness of that, would be one example. But it, it struck me a lot thinking back over the Doctor Who that I've watched, you know, which started in what, mid-2000s, how much Star Trek has influenced a lot of those storylines, um, whether it's... Uh, you know, for example, there's an episode in the Christopher Eccleston series where uh, Rose goes back to try and save her father from being hit by a car. Feels very much like a sort of riff on City of the Edge of Forever, um, even if it's something like the way that David Tennant's Doctor. Sorry, this is spoilers again for anyone who hasn't watched Doctor Who. You know, <laughs> maybe stop listening Too right late now because uh, I'm just going to ruin it all. Uh, David Tennant's Doctor, uh, you know, dies in quite a similar way to Spock. He's kind of trapped in a in a plastic box, being irradiated. You know, there's lots of these kind of things that you sort of think, oh, I wonder whether you know when they were writing that was was that kind of in their minds and i suppose these shows they've both they've both survived for 50 odd years but they've also kind of both had uh kind of busy periods and fallow periods absolutely uh, yeah and, they mean, seem to be in a yin and yang as well uh, that when you know doctor who's when doctor who is on star trek isn't so much and they seem to sort of be uh it, it's quite good it means i'm not i'm not constantly trying to consume so much of the you know we're, we're, we've got we've got both on at the moment but so yeah i think um i i mean i i i, I certainly uh the impact but we can't underestimate the impact of next generation um when it comes on i don't know how old you are but i'm i'm very old <laughs> and i and I, I remember that and i i remember that there had been no there'd been pretty much no science fiction on television for for ages in britain you know, blake seven had been off for ages doctor who was there we'd had star cops but it had this terrible sort of um scheduling and very few people watched it and there was a kind of snobbery uh in britain in british tv drama towards what we what we at the time we called telefantasy something speculative uh and next gen arriving was was this sort of wow wow this is looks incredible i know when we look at sort of first season next gen now what we're going is wow this is really slow and stagey <laughs> but in fact it was it was incredible it was absolutely um game changing and um and the impact on that on on what was acceptable to uh tell on television and you know from next gen we get that we get the whole kind of spin-off series from that we get babylon 5 from babylon 5 and deep space 9 we get serialization back in television and then we're all ready to kind of kick off into things like the x-files and you know, buffy and these kinds of things so that impact of of next gen uh on on the kind of people who love tv drama and love science fiction telefantasy is is immense uh so it so i'm sure its influence must be present even if it's uh in in a sort of setting the identity of doctor who against star trek yeah no star trek is the american show the british show is a bit more a bit more downbeat a bit more cynical the kinds of things you wouldn't see on star trek uh other kinds of things we might do on doctor who so certainly they're in this sort of um they're in this dance aren't they together i think so <laughs> absolutely and it's interesting i hadn't really thought about the 
the way those things lined up before but i suppose you're right you, you know if you think of like next gen certainly through ds9 and voyager you know you had those periods where there were two shows on the air this sort of spin-off era and then you had that again with doctor who a bit later didn't you because there was torchwood there was the sarah jane series there was that series was it called class i didn't see that one but it was set in the school you, you know there was a period of a lot of spin-offs from doctor who and now it sort of feels like it's kind of contracted down a little bit again. And we do, you know, we do have new Doctor Who being produced with Jodie Whittaker, but she's, they did one season and then there's quite a big gap before the next season, I think. Whereas with Star Trek, you know, we've got Discovery, but we've also got like four or five other shows in development. And it feels like any minute we're going to be sort of saturated with new Trek because there's there's so much of it being developed. Just as Doctor Who quietens down again. Yeah, it's uh, I'm sure yeah. it's just coincidence, but it, but it but it is interesting to see this happen. So um so yeah, they're in this they're, in terms of production, I think they're in this sort of um uh, they're not close. They're obviously being made, you know, an ocean apart and a continent apart. Uh, and I don't know how much Doctor Who gets watched in the States. Uh, probably not very much in the uh, 70s and 80s. So an influence on Trek, probably not so much. But it, it would be hard to be making a science fiction show in Britain and, and not to have seen or have watched or be influenced in some way by Star Trek. It's just there, isn't it? It's the global science yeah. fiction phenomenon. Well, I wonder whether increasingly, though, we might see more influence going the other way, because I know, I mean, funnily enough, my very first exposure to Doctor Who, actually, this isn't quite true. I, I remember watching that 3D one that they did for Children in Need, but I was I was slightly baffled uh, by that. I don't think the plot of that necessarily made a huge amount of sense. It all seemed to be about the 3D specs. But the first time I sat down to actually watch Doctor Who, uh, and it's a miracle I carried on watching it, to be honest, was the Paul McGann TV movie which I know, you know, is is controversial on, on many levels, including on kind of canonical levels, because there are big uh, revelations in there that don't seem to match up with, with any of the rest of Doctor Who, as I understand it. But I mean, that was um, self-consciously an attempt to sort of uh, reboot Doctor Who for an American audience, um, which I don't think w- was necessarily successful for whatever reason, because it didn't seem to lead to anything. But then I think once you got to the Matt Smith years, certainly they were again trying to kind of hook the Americans. They did start showing it on BBC America, I think, and they did start pulling in American fans. It has a sort of on its own terms. Yeah, I, do, I, I have a soft spot for the uh, the TV movie with the Pertwee logo, as we call it. But um, I and, and I you can see if you look at it and then you watch rose you you can see that yeah. russell t davis has gone and these are the mistakes i won't make i won't talk about <laughs> gallifrey i won't talk about backstory i won't bring it i'll just i'll go back to what happened in that very first episode bring back the mystery all you need is the doctor and the tardis and somebody mm. going on an adventure and that's all that it needs and that's exactly what they do uh, um, because he's, you know, he was making a show for people who had never, probably weren't alive when the McGann story was on. And the problem with the McGann stories, which I quite enjoy, and it looks nice and glossy, and I love Paul McGann, I think he's gorgeous, um, is that it, it it's immediately immersed in a backstory that, in fact, people aren't invested in. Uh, you know, it, it might be something that fans want to see on screen, but it's not something that a casual Gallifrey, Daleks, what's this, Scuro, you know, it makes no sense. So it's very canny what Russell T. Davis does. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting one to start with. A friend of mine, Hayden Gribble, has, has written a very nice um, memoir about being growing up as a Doctor Who fan when there's no Doctor oh, yeah. Who on screen. So he's it's a, it's a, a 
Child Out of Time or something like that. Hayden Gribble. And it's a it's a lovely book, sort of memoir of, you know, because when I was a kid, Doctor Who was on every Saturday night, it felt like. Um, but <laughs> this is through the wilderness years and, you know, how you how you become a fan of something that isn't there, I guess. <laughs> so. That may be why, maybe that's why I never quite latched onto Doctor Who, because it, it might just be a quirk of, I was born in 1983, so I think I think there was some Doctor Who still, you know, Sylvester McCoy was probably, like, I could have been watching that, and for whatever reason I wasn't, but then there was this kind of big uh, gap, and I only really started watching, you know, I, I, I properly started watching, I suppose, uh, with Rose, with the, with the Eccleston era, and that was while I was at university, so I was watching it really, as a, I've always watched it as an adult, as much as I sort of... Um, enjoy it on a kind of not a childish level exactly but it is you know it does have a lot of charms like that 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 are part of its appeal i think um but it's interesting that you bring up rose because the other thing that's striking i think about that episode is the fact i mean for a start the fact that it's called rose you know it's named after the companion it's not named after the doctor and i suppose that's what russell t davis does brilliantly i think um and one of the things that really marks his era of doctor who from my perspective is he writes fantastic, uh, like real people, real characters. And, you know, we saw this recently with his his series Years and Years. You know, I mean, he is just a, a master writer of kind of interesting, ordinary people. Yeah, people sitting um, around having a bit of a, a bicker around a packet of revels or something. You know, he's, he's very, exactly. very good at that. And and that's very, very yeah. clever. I mean, it's there in the very first episode. I mean, Rose is focalised through Rose. Mm-hmm. She's the point of view character. But that's right back there in 1963, um, you know, um, in an unearthly child, it's vocalised through Ian and Barbara. Um, and as and as far as you'd be concerned as a viewer, if you watched an unearthly child fresh, if you sat down in 1963, they would be the leads. You'd be going. These two young teachers have found themselves, and the Doctor's quite an unpleasant, abrasive character. You know, you, you you're really uncertain about him. He's doing rotten things to them. And those are the people that the story is focalised. And Russell T. Davis, he's pretty much said this. He looks back. He looked back at that and he went, that's how you tell this story. You tell it through the eyes of somebody really very ordinary. And he, it, it's, he's fantastic. I remember at the time people, um, when, when it came up that uh, Rose was, uh, uh, Billy Piper was leaving, people who had come to the show just with that, I'd never seen any of the early, early stuff, were saying, well, how can it survive? This is the setup is... The Doctor, the TARDIS, and Rose. That's that's what the setup is, and we were kind of going, trust us, <laughs> it's, it's it's all right. <laughs> this this show's got a lot of legs in it, but she felt absolutely for, for new viewers and for many who had because it brought in a kind of young female audience as well. She was absolutely the point of identification in the show. And they, people didn't think, you know, new viewers didn't think it could survive the loss of her. Of course it does, because it's, it's Doctor Who and it's the best, most flexible format in television. But uh, yeah, there was a lot of sense that it, that it wouldn't survive that. But it's absolutely great. And, and he knew exactly what he was doing. He's great on that kind of um, very ordinary person, uh, uh, finding the extraordinary within them when faced with the bizarre or the unusual or the strange or the frightening or the challenging. Yeah, uh, uh, great stuff. Exactly. As opposed to the Moffat companions feel to me more like they're they're, they're almost these kind of mythic characters in their own right, if you know what I mean. You've got someone like Clara. They, they seem to have a destiny. They seem to have a kind of... And I, I know you get that to some extent, I suppose, with Donna um, in the Russell T. Davis era, but you do also get this sense of her as quite an 
uh, quite a real ordinary sort of person. I mean, when I say ordinary, I don't mean that they're they're humdrum or they're kind of boring. I mean, what he does is finds the vibrancy in real people's lives. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. Don- Donna is someone you genuinely, I mean, she's, you know, obviously they play her a, a tiny bit over the top and they write her just a tiny bit grotesque. Um, but she's somebody that you would meet. Uh, yeah, you, exactly. abso- you absolutely believe it. I, I often think that they're sort of um, Moffat characters are often uh, they're, they're just they're much more stylized, I think, uh, which is fun. It's in its own way. They're, they're more like characters from the Avengers. You know, there's something a little bit, mm. like you say, archetypal or uh, stylized or, or a bit like bit more like something you'd find in a Marvel movie, perhaps. Mm. That it, it's not somebody that you would be sitting next to on the bus and going, oh gosh, she's. She's putting her lipstick on now, and oh, I've just got to blast that perfume in my face. You know, it's uh, that's the kind of um, person that uh, uh, that that Russell T Davis deals with. People that you would be sitting next to on the bus, uh, and then you know, an alien lands on your head, and everybody screams, and she turns out to be the most courageous person you've ever met. Um, whereas in a Moffat script, they feel much more like they're um, they have slightly. There's something a bit more superhero-ish about them. I'm, I'm thinking of the Paternoster gang and, and that set. Yeah. There's something special about special. them. It's interesting. Well, and of course, Star Trek, I suppose, has toyed with these kind of companion-like characters. I mean, I'm thinking, say, Gillian Taylor in uh, Star Trek IV, Rain Robinson in Voyager, who was a character I loved. I thought Sarah Silverman was fantastic in that role. And they were considering, I think, the idea of keep, you know bringing her on board and making her a series regular, which would very much have been uh, basically filling that kind of companion role, you know, someone who's not only not a member of Starfleet, but is not even of that century, you know, someone who is completely the fish out of water and can give you that kind of um, uh, that sort of counterpoint, can give you that kind of alternative voice in a way, because I suppose often, you, you know, what you get with the Doctor and the Companion well, on a kind of very basic uh, sort of formulaic level, the companion bridges the gap between the Doctor and the audience because the Doctor has to explain everything to them. But ideally, it sort of cuts both ways. And the companion is sort of teaching the doctor something at the same time. Because I suppose if it's all one way, the danger is, especially when it's some, you know, 20 year old girl following him around the whole time, that it does seem like this rather kind of um, uh, old fashioned kind of model of this kind of older guy just mansplaining the whole time, effectively. (laughs) That guy leaning over to the woman on the train. Yeah, it's a little bit like that. That's very. I'm really thinking through how that would work in Star Trek about uh, maybe having someone from our time, because there are there's there's sort of two different modes going on, isn't there? I think um, uh, there are are names that you can attach to different kinds of fantasy. There's an idea of a, a portal fantasy, which is, you know, you you step through a door and then mm-hmm. you, you go into a fantastic space and that door can be the wardrobe, the, the rabbit hole. It can be the TARDIS. So that's largely what's happening. And you, you need somebody taken from uh, an ordinary place into another. Uh, so, it, you know, it, in, in Lord of the Rings, even Frodo sort of goes through the old forest. And that's a kind of portal. Um, but in Star Trek, you've got a different sort of fantastical setting. You've got, uh, I think it's known as an immersive setting is that you're always within you're, you're straight away within the parameters of this world and everything right. operates within that. So you might get, you know, aliens and things that people don't know about, but the world is sort of self-contained. There's no kind of um, shift from our world to it. So that would be a real kind of breaking of the rules of something or the instinctive rules of the game of something like Star Trek. It'd be really interesting to see that work. That kind of um, relationship were uh, the, the sort of the Holmes-Watson 
explaining to each other is usually done uh, through a character like Spock or Data uh, in Star Trek. Uh, Explain to me this technobabble. I shall explain to you the technobabble. Explain to me the workings of the human heart. I shall explain to you the workings of the human heart. So you've always got that kind of dynamic going on. And that that's the similar thing, I think, the similar sort of um, explaining what's explaining the, you know, the um, logic of the story and the emotion of the story to each other. That's what the Doctor and the Companion do to each other. It's it's Spock and Kirk or um, uh, Picard and Data, I think. So that's the similar relationship going on. But never someone from our time. I'd love to think about how that would work. Because, like I say, it would sort of change the rules of the stories uh, quite a lot. Hmm, how interesting. <laughs> well, there you go. That's something. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, <laughs> you're, you're the one who can run with it. I mean, but there is that sort of interesting idea of kind of culture clash. And, and I, I, I know what you mean, that it sort of would break the rules of Star Trek. But on the other hand, Star Trek breaks its own rules uh, with abandon in some ways. And you do get those episodes, you know, particularly, I mean, The Future's End obviously is kind of a riff on Star Trek Four. in some ways. It's almost the same scenario and the same beats being played out. But that idea of this kind of culture clash, this idea of someone who kind of almost undercuts the kind of pomposity of that sort of Starfleet uh, idealism, in a sense. You, you know, you do, I suppose you get it in different ways. You could say, I mean, Quark is not exactly that character, but it's someone who's kind of coming from a, a different angle and kind of um, yeah. having an interaction with those characters from outside. Well, the whole of Deep uh, Space Nine is a, a series of a kind of Greek chorus of characters going. <laughs> it, it, it's like the... Um, you know, in the Asterix books, uh, where you've got the, these Romans, they're crazy. It's like Quark and, yes. and Garrick yeah. and Odo and Decat and Damar and Wayun. These Starfleet officers, they're crazy. You know, so yeah. Deep Space Nine is is like a everybody's voice is going. No, no, it doesn't work like that. And Starfleet are going. No, no, we shall show you the uh, error of your ways and your thinking. And that that's one of the tensions at the heart of Deep Space Nine. I think. Um, will they? Uh, will Will Starfleet go native, as it were, or will they? Yeah. Will they turn everyone into sort of Starfleet uh, um, clones? Will they borgify them? So um, yeah, and that's a that's a central dilemma in um, in in Deep Space Nine, certainly. Um, yeah. I suppose it's something you do see. I mean, Doctor Who obviously is like fundamentally a time travel show as much as a kind of sci-fi, you know, as much as it, it goes in space and time. It, it, it does both. And it often, certainly in the later series, it flits between, there seems to be sort of three, like a formula in three. So you have one set in, on Earth in the present day, you have one uh, set out in space somewhere distant, then you have one set on Earth in the past and you kind of... Um, you know, rinse and repeat almost those different uh, permutations of what the show can do. I mean, Star Trek obviously is not fundamentally a time travel show, but it does do time travel stories. And when it does those stories, a lot of it is often about that kind of culture clash between the kind of advanced, enlightened 23rd, 24th century Starfleet people and the kind of more like the the real people, whether it's our own time, uh, you know, which Star Trek does do occasionally, but even when it's not our time, when it's kind of close enough. So someone like Zephram Cochran, okay, that's in a projected sci-fi future, sort of dystopian future, but he is recognisably a character of the 20th century, even if he's technically in the mid-21st century. Um, And, you know, you get this kind of clash. And I suppose both shows, I think they also do interesting stuff with real historical figures. And I mean, 
I mentioned the idea for this conversation sort of came out of that episode about Rosa Parks. Uh, I remember also one of my favourite of the Matt Smith episodes was the episode uh, with Van Gogh, uh, where they go back and meet him. And obviously, you know, Star Trek, we've had Amelia Earhart bumping into Janeway in the Delta Quadrant. You know, we've had various kind of, we've had uh, Mark Twain, for example. We've had these kind of real life characters having these uh, interactions. Both shows, I think, get a lot of... Um, you know, pleasure and, and fascination in, in playing that card. And in Doctor Who, there's also the element of, um, actually going back to Sherlock Holmes. I think it's a trick that, that Conan Doyle sort of invented because there was, it's a sort of myth about the great rat of Sumatra. Isn't there? All these kind of cases that you never see, this idea of like seeding all these kind of. Which you, uh, you do, you do see the rat of Sumatra on in, uh, Doctor Who, you know, there's a, there's a. Oh, do you? Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. There's a, a 70s. The towns of Wang Chiang is a, is a Holmes influenced story and, uh, well, that's what I was thinking of. Yes, exactly. And you have a giant, a giant rat in there. Exactly. And I mean, that's an episode that sort of pretty much explicitly acknowledges that, that influence because you've got, um, the doc, I was going to say you've got Sherlock Holmes. You literally got the doctor dressed as Sherlock Holmes and saying elementary and doing all this kind of, uh, you know, without ever actually name dropping Sherlock Holmes, basically kind of, uh, doing a Sherlock Holmes episode. But so, so I suppose. Both shows can kind of draw on that, but you also get with the Doctor, and you get it even in that episode, he makes some reference to, I can't remember what it, you know, when I was chatting to Plato or something, and, and in the, the Vincent van Gogh episode, you've got him saying, oh, I remember when, you know, I was there when the, the Sistine Chapel was being painted, or do you, do you know what I mean? You get all these all these references to these sort of imagined escapades that are never going to be seen on screen as a way of sort of bolstering the mythology of these characters almost yeah, yeah. Um, you, like throwing little bones to the either audience either the somehow. doctor is just a massive name dropper or he's just the greatest teller of fibs but i i mean it's a uh, uh, um towns of wen Chiang is written by bob holmes uh and um and, and i know lots of and i know it's quite problematic in many ways that story i think what robert holmes is very good at is the throwaway line of dialogue that that creates an entire world in your mind. The classic one is, um, uh, I was there as the Filipino army advanced on Reykjavik, which is just a genius piece of writing, an entire, entire piece of history called up in that. It's also beautiful to say, so the actual line is pleasurable and clever. Uh, so just on a kind of... Um, uh, the the pleasure of saying the line it's enjoyable uh, but then this whole world is conjured up in your mind and and yes television and uh, a television that's being made on a budget has to do that doctor who has historically not had uh, a large amount spent on it and so uh, lines like that are extremely effective so to to be able to conjure up these archetypes in your mind of historical figures you've immediately got this sort of um uh, yeah, you can tap into that, that whole vein of um, uh, stuff that people already know. You can activate that in their imaginations. I think the um, the historical figures are there originally because it's it's meant to be a, an educational show. You know, the, the two teachers at the start are a science teacher and a history teacher. Um, you, the idea is that, you know, there would be a sciencey week and a, uh, then a historical week, and then a science fiction week and a historical week. And it doesn't quite pan out like that at all but but the historicals are there to sort of you know they're they're quite serious um they're, they're not what you'd immediately think of those very early 60s you know we get something with the aztecs or we get something uh during revolutionary 
France, or you get something about the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day, or this kind of thing. It's like, whoa, where did that one come from? This bizarre bit of French history. Or um, um, So they're there to have a kind of educational uh, purpose. I think in, in the contemporary show, uh, uh, up until recently, uh, they've had r- more of a sense of historical tourism you know, rocking up and meeting Vincent van Gogh and it's all very beautiful and you're looking at all those images or, uh, you know, nipping back to meet Charles Dickens because it's really exciting. And they play with this. When they meet Victoria, they're kind of nudging each other and they're just giggling over it and trying to get her to say she's not amused. They're sort of playing with that. But in this season, I think the historicals have been incredibly interesting. Um, and they've they've, yeah. they've really, they've got, first of all, they've gone back to the kind of educational remit. And I know there's people going, oh, it makes it sort of all preachy and teachy or whatever. Um, so the, Ro- but the Rosa Parks one, and I think the um, Demons of the Punjab, they, they, they are genuinely what I would call the sort of um, post-imperial or post-colonial stories. They pull the doctor away and his companions away from having the role of saviour. And they're extremely carefully and well thought through. Rosa is, is they, they step back to allow Rosa the stage, the ability to act. And when you get to the Punjab um, episode, even to the Punjab, the aliens are, are practically, um, they're almost a, a red herring in a way. They're simply there to witness. They're not a, they're not a threat. Uh, they've not been the trigger for what's going on. The, 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 that you could take them out of that story and, and you wouldn't miss it. Uh, they're almost to sort of, um, you know, to deflect you in a way. And the story is about the actual history that's unfolding. And these are really interesting shifts in what Doctor Who is doing in its storytelling. I, I'll be very interested to see if they if they do a pure pure historical next season. Uh, it's a big change. And meanwhile, on Star Trek, I guess what you're doing with historicals, I'm thinking of things like Past Tense and Deep Space Nine, you're treating them as um, uh, warnings from history, aren't you? You're sort of sending back the the, the evolved humans or the uh, you know the um, the supermen of, um, of of Starfleet to go back and and look at a period of our history and say, well, this is this is where we came from. Thank goodness we're not there anymore. Uh, and m- most memorably, um, far beyond the stars, I guess. And then they do a Roswell episode where, you know, it's <laughs> absolutely daft. But, um, you know, most of the fun of it is just from seeing how much people are smoking. So in Trek, I guess it, it's it's much more a sort of social commentary on, on what's in the world um, uh, that, that we're in, I think. Yeah. Although I would say, strikingly, in Star Trek, I mean, past tense, uh, a bit like First Contact, I suppose, the movie is, is, you know, is yes, they're going back in time, but they're going back in time into what is still a sci-fi, you know, not a not very sci-fi, but is still a kind of, a, a, again, a sort of dystopian future. I feel like when Star Trek actually goes back into the past, and Far Beyond the Stars is a bit different because it's sort of, is it real? Is it a dream? You, you, you know, where does it kind of sit? When they actually go into the past, I'd say more often than not, it is for a kind of fairly light romp if you know what i mean um and maybe that's they're not necessarily maybe as engaged with these kind of key events you, you know doctor who shall we kill hitler uh what do we do you, 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 you know there's a there's a greater sense in doctor who i suppose and it's it's almost a 
an issue for the show i suppose that you've got this character who's this great sort of humanitarian extremely compassionate very kind you, you know all qualities that he shares or, or she shares that the doctor shares with um you know with starfleet characters with starfleet captains and so on but you've also got this tension between that and again as in star trek you know in star trek we have the prime directive which is a kind of break on that on that impulse to some extent the doctor clearly has very similar rules you know they don't call it the temporal prime directive as they do in voyager but he has clear rules of about things he's not allowed to do you know as much as his role is going around saving people from dying horrific deaths in certain circumstances he's not meant to do that and by the time you got to the end of the David Tennant uh, run the kind of penultimate story was one where basically he kind of flips towards the end the whole story is him basically saying I can't do anything I can't stop this event from happening and interestingly this is not a historical it's not a real historical event it's not like in Quantum Leap where he thought he was going to stop Kennedy being assassinated it's a kind of future history event so the the stakes are slightly different for us as the the real world viewers but but the whole sort of storyline there really is the doctor kind of coming to a point where he says at the end you know sod it actually i'm the only time lord left i don't care about the rules anymore i'm gonna you know screw up the whole timeline and do whatever i want i know i know best basically and then he sort of gets punished for it because it it doesn't work it blows up in his face and then i'm not saying this is this is necessarily why he ends up dying in the next episode but i feel there's almost a kind of sense that like he he got too big for his boots he got kind of um there's something kind of megalomaniacal about it well Um, all these questions of all these questions about uh prime directive and uh interventionism are are all sort of to my mind they're kind of veiled allegories of 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 imperial and military Mm -hmm. intervention so it's it's an agonizing on on the screen through the medium of popular culture about america as the world's policeman yeah or or what is britain's role in uh, as a post-imperial power and these kinds of things, so I I don't think I'm stretching too far. I I, I genuinely don't think I am, but but certainly uh, uh, the prime directive is there to sort of um, uh, uh, police imperialism. I guess is the idea, isn't it? We you know uh, historically intervening in other people's affairs has led to the construction of empires. Empires are bad things. Let us not intervene. Oh God they're all killing each other we can't let this yeah so it's it's a sort of playing out of these anxieties and what you know certainly in in the 90s uh in things like deep space nine um it it's uh what is america meant to be doing as 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 the world's only significant power does it have a moral imperative to intervene or are these interventions kind of bound to end in a, a, a worse effect uh, uh and then you would kind of go well kosovo yes Iraq war, <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. So there are a sort of playing out of that dilemma, I think. Uh, and then in the case of in the, in the case of Doctor Who, I I, I think it's sort of that there's a lot a, a lot of that David Tennant story is I think working through the anxieties of um, the Iraq war. So uh, uh, you're kind of seeing that played out on screen. Is it right to sort of if you have this power? what are the conditions under which it is right and wrong to use it is kind of my reading and and whether the show sort of can do that meaningfully or does do it meaningfully that's another that's another question i think also i think it's a it's it's a real problem as a storyteller if you're not i i've I've had this experience i I wrote a doctor who short story set during the spartacus rebellion Mm -hmm. and the problem with setting something in known history is that you know how it ends and the show itself hits up against this with the pompeii episode if if you know how things play out what story can you tell there? Because we know that the Doctor doesn't stop Pompeii from erupting. 
and all these people are going to die. So we get, so we've lost that dramatic element. So where do we find the drama? And the the doctor has to resort to quite a small scale intervention there, doesn't he? he saves he saves Peter Capaldi, in fact. <laughs> yes, there you go, yeah. All power to him. <laughs> Turns out to be a prophetic move, clearly. Yeah. Saves his own future self. <laughs> yeah. So there's a dramatic problem there for a for a storyteller, I think. Although you can go the route, I mean, the quantum leap route was quite clever, I think, when they did that Kennedy episode, because they, they, it, the way it worked out was that in the, the universe before quantum leap, in a sense, uh, Jackie Kennedy died as well. And that was their kind of twist at the end. So they kind of, so they managed to, uh, make it seem that he did manage to influence something. And you were like, oh, okay, right. Well, that's what happened. You, you know, so you kind of it, it almost, you know, slots himself into real world history in that sense. I think the difference though also is that there's, Yes, you can have this sort of anti-colonial uh, idea and this kind of these ideals and this, you know directives, whatever. Where it becomes very difficult is though is when it gets personal. And obviously, you know, we do see it with with Kirk in City on the Edge of Forever and so on. I mean, I think that the Eccleston episode where he takes Rose back to uh, the point where her father dies and expects her not to try and save his life is I mean it's interesting because it kind of breaks their relationship temporarily because he's very down on her and very kind of. He, you know, he turns on her really in that episode. But I think to expect someone not to behave like that is expecting a level of coolness and kind of rationality. I suppose all these things that, you know, Roddenberry, certainly by the time of the next generation, would kind of think that humans ought to aspire to these kind of noble, disinterested um, uh, sort of sentiments. But realistically, who is not going to do exactly what she did and you know in voyager we see the catastrophic uh example in year of hell of of the uh you know anorax who is uh is trying to save his own family and is kind of just creating havoc and and you know it gets worse and worse and worse the more he tries to meddle in it because of how complicated it is but ultimately how how much can you expect someone to really respect those i suppose it, you know it's a big question how much if something is is scientifically possible or is you know in this sort of fantastical world it so if certain things are are possible certain kinds of interventions to what extent can you really expect someone to hold back from doing what they can you know yeah and part of and uh, what's so clever about that episode father's day is is it's it's setting up the alienness of the doctor for a new viewer as well that uh you know we're rightly saying well who who wouldn't do that well somebody who's a time lord wouldn't <laughs> yeah. they're yes. pl- they're playing a longer game they see uh life is much more ephemeral to them uh there's a uh, there's a there's a longer story going on or there are there are things that you don't know about that uh, can have an effect mm-hmm. so it sets up the alienness of of him and it sets up uh our, our sympathy to rose and a, a sense that she's moving into a into a different and quite frightening world where perhaps the rules are changing. Uh, it's a lovely episode. It's very, very scary. It's quite sapphire and steelish, that episode, I think. <clears throat> that sort of coldness that you feel as the, you know, the, 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 I forget what the creature's called now, but as it kind of comes down, people sort of uh, disappear and are eaten. Uh, there, there are sort of laws to time. A little bit Stephen King as well, isn't there? A, uh, yeah, Langoliers. Langoliers, yeah, this idea that, that yeah. things are sort of... These things that eat up time. Exactly that, and are sort of setting it right or a, or a byproduct of something going wrong. So, um, no, it's a very good episode, isn't it? and it dramatises her, this new relationship that she's got into with this very powerful, very different, very alien man. You know, he's not hes not just some bloke. You know, hes uh, there's other stuff happening as well. And there's things that perhaps she doesn't 
uh, understand. Um, but then at the same time, uh, as you say, who wouldn't do that? And I suppose that's one of the things that's interesting about the Doctor as a character is there is this sense of as much as, it, you know, the actor might be regenerated each time, there is this sense of this character that's hundreds or thousands or, you know, God knows how old exactly, this great age. And I suppose you do see that in Star Trek as well. I mean, the the, the closest link probably to the Doctor really in Star Trek is the Trills. Uh, and, you know, and you see exactly the same thing, I suppose, when Terry Farrell leaves DS9, you know, you get the replacement Dax just in the same way as you get the replacement Doctor each time. And I suppose it's interesting, we were talking a little bit earlier about death and kind of the way these shows look at death. I mean, in some ways, Doctor Who, just like with Star Trek, you have these kind of constant redshirt deaths. You know, I mean, the the, the death count in Doctor Who is, is pretty high. There's always like random people who get blown up or incinerated or or vaporized or you know i mean <laughs> and to the point that there's that one episode where the doctor in the you know um eccleston again sort of says this time no one's going to die this is kind of the one episode where no one is going to die in this episode i'm going to keep them all alive right to the end that's a stephen um, moffat yeah. episode isn't it it's uh, right, doctor exactly, dances yeah. yeah everybody lives but then the but then the doctor himself of course is the one who who dies but comes back, you, you know, who like is, that is baked into the show. So, so whether or not other characters can kind of do that, the Doctor is sort of the exception. And there is this, um, you know, probably that's one of the most fundamental distinctive things about the show. And obviously it wasn't, it, it wasn't um, baked into the concept. I mean, it wasn't originally the intention. This was a way of getting around the fact that the, the lead actor was, was not up to it anymore and a way of recasting, but a brilliant decision in retrospect because that's one of the things that has allowed the show to keep going and you know to change the companions to change the doctor to have this kind of constant recycling in a much more kind of frequent and kind of um almost sort of organic way than star trek which has kind of has rebranded itself has rebooted itself has kind of revisioned itself at various points even within series to some extent you, you know you get these sort of soft reboots within a series where they bring a new character in or they you know, like the defiant bringing the defiant into ds9 or something like that but you know D- doctor who is like constantly evolving by changing you know changing the personnel moving the pieces around redesigning the tardis getting a new doctor getting a new companion etc while at the same time the kind of overall uh not the overall story but the o- the overall sort of format is kind of endlessly trundling forward. Yeah, yeah. All you need is a madman in a box. Is the uh, you know that's the line from the show, isn't it? Or a mad woman these days, of course. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so all, all it needs is the Doctor and the TARDIS, uh, uh, and 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 somebody to go to go. Oh, I wonder what happens if I step inside this ridiculous little yeah. box. Oh my God! You know. <laughs> so that's. I mean, that's the format, isn't it? You know, I'll just yes, I'll come in, uh, and I'll I'll go for a ride in your ridiculous, uh, you know, tiny tiny box of of, of wonders and delights so um and and that's what makes it so clever um yeah so that so the doctor is constantly the doctor is constantly it's never really a death it's a sort of uh, they, they sort of play it that way it's really interesting I, I, capaldi's death in particular i think was really interesting and um matt smith's as well you and it's partly a farewell for the actor but you did it's we're going back to sort of um uh, uh, thinking about what personhood means and selfhood means again you see the you see the death of a person don't you and yet the doctor continues you see that you see the death of of 12 or 10 or i'm not supposed to call them that am i, I think people get very cross about that but i'll, I'll do it anyway you see the de- death of 10 or 11 or 12 and the new doctor emerging but, but it is still the doctor it's it still feels like there's always that agelessness that playfulness that sudden anger that um quick thinking that uh 
that sort of quick talking as you're trying to think of what you're going to do next. You know, um, the doctor remains whilst the person disappears, I think. And yeah, I, I really love um, Esri Dax. I think it's a I think it's a lovely performance by Nicole DeBerg. Really, really hard job to take that on uh, at that mm. stage in a show after such a, a popular performance. Uh, and I think she she plays it with a sort of um, oh, it's so cleverly done because because Esri's sort of tripping over her feet and her words and you know isn't really trained yet and is is completely out mm. of her depth and never never planned to host a symbiont and all these sorts of things. And then you see this sort of, um, you know, this this gorgeousness to her. And at the same time, you you see Dax, this very ancient thing, uh, the wisdom of it or the experience of it suddenly come through and she'll come out with something that's absolutely on the on the button. Um, you know, the advice she gives, the, the guidance she gives. Um, I sometimes think of Guinan as, uh, as, as being from Gallifrey. She's somebody else who seems sort of time lordish to me. And then, of course, we've got Q. Who can you know zip? But he's 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 different. He's the, the doctor is not all powerful. He's just just very very clever and very very sort of quick thinking. Um, but I guess they would be the other the other figures that I think are most time lordish. I suppose. Yeah. No, I can see that definitely. I mean, it's interesting this sort of question of identity and you know to what extent is it the same person? Is it a different person? And also, you know, now that you have with Jodie Whittaker and I know that you've written um you know both for previous male doctors and now for the the new you know 13 the new female doctor and I think there is this sort of interesting question I mean I was very excited when they cast Jodie Whittaker I think she's a fantastic actress uh you you know I, I I think she's great I think she was a really good choice for it and I I like her a lot I I did feel when I first started watching it I don't know why and, and I don't know if this is just maybe it's just sort of ingrained sexism or maybe it's to do with the writing or whatever but there was something about it that made me feel is this the same character and the, the thing that seemed different to me and this may be my limited knowledge of Doctor Who is most of the Doctor Who's that I'd seen you know since Eccleston there's this real kind of arrogance that is quite a there, there's a sort of a, a, a more unpleasant side to their character maybe less so with Matt Smith but certainly if you think of Capaldi and Tennant particularly and Eccleston to some extent and that was the thing that I felt was slightly missing from the way they characterised Jodie Whittaker. And I was thinking, is that because it's a woman and they don't want to lean on that? Do you know what I mean? Are they pulling away from the kind of more acerbic side of the Doctor's personality? And therefore, that makes me question slightly, is this really the same person? I suppose it's an interesting question, you know, when you have... And we had all this in Star Trek, of course, with Janeway. You know, is she too feminine? Is she too masculine? This kind of constant anxiety because it's a woman in that role of... of everything becomes gendered somehow um and i suppose there's that interesting question with Jodie whittaker of is is she i'm not saying she's not just as much the doctor like i think it's fantastic that she's the doctor but what does being the doctor mean when it's a woman being the doctor i suppose because she's the first one and there hasn't been another female doctor before are they consciously almost consciously unconscious of it in in some way they're kind of it's always in the person's mind writing it i'm curious you you know for you having written for her doctor but also for previous doctors do you approach it differently in any way knowing that you're writing for that version of the character i mean it must change depending on which doctor you're writing right even though on one level it's the same thing the way i write the doctor is that i always try to write the doctor so i always write to that to that essential person and then, uh, and and you can see this. I think this footage of um, isn't the footage of Sylvester McCoy delivering one of of, of te- tenant's speeches or something. And you go, oh yes, that's the Doctor. 
but it's the seventh doctor it's absolutely consistent so i always i always keep that you know never cowardly never cruel i always keep that in the back of my mind Mm -hmm. but then the doctor performs to a different space so whatever their physicality is that that doctor is going to be slightly different and and what makes it um more what makes it interesting when it's a, a woman is uh is not so much that the doctor has changed but how people treat women or what they consider as acceptable behavior from women is 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 different and that's why the witch finders is such a if there was any of the any of the earlier doctors in that um it would be a different episode. The fact yeah. that the Doctor is female there uh, in, a, in an intensely misogynist situation alters the nature of the interactions that she is going to have. It's not that the, it's not that the Doctor is different, it's that the people around her treat her differently because she is a woman. So, uh, and they were very, very clever with that. I thought. I thought they. Um, I, th- I think one of the reasons that maybe uh, the Thirteenth Doctor is uh, uh, more friendly, uh, more um, sort of um, personable, is they'd really leaned into the kind of crankiness with the Capaldi Doctor. So there's always going to be that. Well, we're not going to do it quite like that. We're going to swing the other way. So I think it's probably as much to do with you know it being at, coming straight after that. But I think they had also quite carefully thought through what it was. They didn't make a big fanfare. You know, they kind of go, oh, great, my woman this time. Hooray. It's a little bit of that. But then I think that episode in particular was very, very careful about the way it thought through what it means to have this person presenting as female and, and play, mm-hmm. played that through in a very, chose a very good setting for it and, um, and played it through extremely well. So, um, so props to them. They, they handled that question in a really, really excellent way and in an excellent episode one of the highlights of the season for me, I think that episode really good. Um, but I, I think partly her, her more personable nature is, is maybe just a reaction to what came before. Because Capaldi's quite the Capaldi doctor is quite horrible <laughs> sometimes, mm-hmm. particularly at the, at the start. It's really, really kind of cranky and you know not very kind. So I think, yeah. and that's not very doctorish. Being unkind is not terribly doctorish to me. Uh, so, yeah. and I, I will say one thing about Jodie Whittaker, which is that um, everyone at my kids' school is nuts about her. So as far as uh, my five-year-old is concerned, this is the doctor. You know, in, in a sort of you know. Uh, well, yes, I will watch those other ones, but can we watch the the proper one now, the girl one? <laughs> so is she is she excited? I mean, if she yeah. knows that you're writing a story, because oh, yes. I, I, yeah, I yeah. I've read your most recent um uh what's it called? Molten Earth is that what it's called? Molten the, Heart. The most recent, yeah. Um, and that is obviously with Jodie Whittaker's uh thirteen, and and it struck me reading that, and also you know having read some of your Star Trek novels, it does feel like the that certainly that Doctor Who novel is geared maybe towards a younger. I mean, I enjoyed it, but it, it felt like it could be read at a, a younger level than some of the Star Trek novels, which might require a slightly higher level. That's absolutely conscious. I mean, you want you want a, you want a, 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 an eight year old reader to be able to read this book. So uh, just as right, just sure. as Doctor just yeah. as I was reading the Target novelizations when you know I was a kid. Yeah. So uh, you know yeah. I, I was yeah. eight, seven, eight, nine. That uh, you know reading those books. Uh, and, and that's exactly the, the gap that they're meant to fill. You, you want, a, you want a, a kid to be able to sit down and read this book by themselves and hopefully be a little bit stretched and have fun and recognise the Doctor. Um, 
or an adult to pick it up and think, well, you know, I enjoyed that. That was a that was a nice slice of the show. So, um, so that that's sort of how they're intended to be written. Yeah, um, but the Star Trek books, I think, have got a very different. Yeah, it's a, it's an entirely different audience um, and an entirely different thing that you're doing with the show. I think. Um, so, yeah, they they are very different. <laughs> There's, I mean, I'm curious. Does your does your daughter feel like you, you know if you're writing for thir- you know the thirteenth Doctor, that's like she's more excited about that than if you go back and write something for you know one of the previous Doctors. There must be that kind of because everyone has their own Doctor, I suppose. A bit like maybe everyone has their own Star Trek that sort of got them in. Everyone has. I mean, for me, I think actually when I think of Doctor Who, I think of David Tennant. Maybe just because although Christopher Eccleston, I saw all that first, it was only one season, it was so short. The David Tennant years, the ones that kind of lodged in my mind. So he's almost the kind of um, template for me that I'm I think, unconsciously comparing other people to. I mean, who was your Doctor? Who was the Doctor when you first started? And does that influence how you see all the others? Well, the first Doctor I saw was uh, was probably Pertwee. And then I, I must have watched right. most of Tom Baker. But but my Doctor mm-hmm. is da- uh, Peter Davison, um, which are the, really? the okay. stories that I really imprinted on. And then later, I I, I love Sylvester McCoy's stories. And uh, I, I love uh, I love Ace and the stories that she has. I think Ace is a, a transformational companion. You wouldn't have Rose without Ace. Um, so I would say Peter Davison and Sylvester McCoy. Uh, and then, of course, I just uh, watching my little one sort of just love Jodie Whittaker so much. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll always have a soft spot for that doctor. I think the only thing that could excite her more was if I wrote a Sarah Jane novel, uh, because Sarah, really... Sarah Jane is the one that she absolutely loves. Sarah Jane Adventures, absolutely yeah. perfect. Well, she also was like one of those, you know, real sort of perfect companion characters, I think, as well, wasn't she? She was one where they really kind of, you know, it seems like the companions, sometimes they hit it sometimes they don't quite gel for whatever reason sometimes that dynamic whatever it is about them the character or the dynamic or something really kind of uh lands oh she's just great we we showed my little one hand of fear the other day which is is sarah jane's last story and she's just she's just great in it she there's a playfulness she's uh you know the the doctor's being all sort of oh important things and she's sort of going oh you know doctor we're doing this all the time you know there's a, a there's a fun to her and a playfulness and then a kind of um uh, a vulnerability to her as well. It's a it's a beautiful performance, and she brings that to the Sarah Jane Adventures as well. Um, yeah, mm. she, she was wonderful, quite wonderful. So Sarah Jane Adventures was the gateway in, and then perfectly they they cast a woman, and and that was it. Deal deal done. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> good good plan on the part of the Doctor Who producers there to to uh, nab your daughter's viewing interest. Yeah. Given we have a full size Dalek, I think that was going to happen yeah. anyway. But you know, you never know. They sometimes they resist. <laughs> it could have gone wrong. I know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, and Sarah Jane, of course, is a character who you know was sort of brought back in the Tenant era and then given this whole sort of life as a, a, a spin off character in her own right. I mean, one of the things that strikes me about Doctor Who that you know does connect with star trek is when you have these very long running franchises you know both uh more than half a century at this point and still going strong one way or another 
is the kind of role of nostalgia for the show's own past. I mean, we talked a little bit about canon and kind of tying yourself in knots over canon, which Star Trek, particularly with Discovery, say has raised a lot of issues around canon and always does when Star Trek kind of reinvents itself one way or another. But there's also this sense of kind of nostalgia and in-jokes and kind of fan service and these, you know, say these anniversary episodes. And Doctor Who has it baked into these ideas of, you know, the, the five Doctors, the three Doctors, the kind of, you know, this idea that you can you can bring characters back. And in the tenant era they they were bringing lots of characters sort of back one way or another um but you can also you know you can even bring the doctor back um and you can have these kind of crossover episodes which is a really star trek fans always sort of wanted this when when next gen and ds9 and voyager all on the air there was always this sort of clamor for like you know we want to see voyager come back to deep space nine we we want to see more interaction between these shows and there was never actually all that much other than you know a character like Worf who crosses from one into the other um but with doctor who you get this kind of real excitement i I suppose we got it with uh trials and tribulations in star trek it's sort of the closest almost the idea of going back into another episode and capaldi's final episode sort of does the same thing because he encounters the first doctor with it and their sort of their their storylines kind of converge somehow um but that idea of not only meeting the previous not only getting the previous performers back but almost kind of um you know going back into your own time stream as it were uh and playing with the kind of nostalgia of the audience and the creators as well um in the way you do that i mean we saw it in discovery with you know going back to talos 4 uh and 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 so on and the whole you know storyline with uh pike and your namesake of course and Spock <laughs> and so on yeah i think they uh i think they did it very well in discovery didn't they i think that you you didn't you didn't need to be invested or, or, or remotely know who pike was you, you will almost certainly have a sense of you know what the enterprise was and uh, you know if you had no interest in star trek you're probably not watching discovery for one thing but um uh you 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 could you could pick up um um pike on his own terms i think it's such a great he's absolutely great in it doesn't he he absolutely owns it um trials and tribulations is um uh it it's the 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 textbook in how to do this kind of thing. It is just brilliant. Uh, yeah. the, the aesthetic that they get. Um, I, I know that they, uh, the writers talk about uh, sort of sending, and they use Dax as well, don't they? Because she remembers, Dax remembers this period in history. Um, and uh, the writers talk about having Dax going around as the sort of, oh, cool, look, that's Spock. Oh, cool. You know, that she's the sort of mouthpiece for the excitement about all of this. She's got genuine nostalgia because she remembers it. That's the thing. Whereas so much of nostalgia is kind of manufactured, but for her, it's it's authentic. Oh, yeah, you know? I'm going back into my, oh, I can't believe these. Oh, I loved this design and oh, I miss these skirts and you know, it's kind of thing. Um, Doctor Who stuff is, yeah, yeah I did. But as as we talked about with the with the um, McGann movie, you know uh, that that sort of fan service didn't work. It sort of turned off the audience. I think by the time we got to the fiftieth anniversary with Doctor Who, it's been on screen so long that it it it's uh, it's, so it's been on about eight years, hasn't it? Comes back in two thousand and five. The anniversary is twenty thirteen. So it it's got its own momentum, hasn't it? Um, you know, eight years of 
of television you can sort of reasonably look back on and reflect on. I think they just about just about get away with it. I have to say, I was I was busy having a baby in the middle of all the 50th anniversary celebration stuff. Right, so okay. I, I've watched that episode many times and I, I still have... I've no idea what happened in that episode, no idea what happened when it went out. And then when I watch it, I kind of go back into this sort of oxytocin-filled bliss state. So I kind of <laughs> <laughs> still have no idea what happens. I watch it many, many times. I have no idea what's happened. My favourite out of those um, uh, uh, anniversary um, uh, episodes is the tiny little episode, web episode with McGann, um, mm. where they go back and, uh, you know, they, they sort of go to his regeneration into the war doctor it's just a, a tiny little it's absolutely a little slice of fan service that that phrase um you know it's it's taking back to the sisterhood of khan and you know he, he lists all the big finnish companions and this kind of thing right. but you kind of you you see this sort of um glimpse of what the McGann doctor could have been you go wow i i feel like i've i've just been delivered three seasons of that i've got all this intensity and now i can sense what that show would have been like and of course you know it's it's there on the big finish audios but uh, but I, I i love that so that if they wanted to deliver me a slice of nostalgia and uh, and you know reboot the show at the same time uh, that does it perfectly um but yeah i i'm so i sort of have a mixed sense about those because i think it's it's quite tricky to bring characters back um because uh you know that it might not be quite what you remembered or they interpret it in a different way or um but um, you know, you, you feel like maybe it means the show is running out of steam. Um, but you can't blame them over the fiftieth anniversary. If you can't do it then, when can you do it? So <laughs> they do it. They do it with a lot of love, I think, and they and it is very, uh, a, you know, a bit like Trials and Tribulations. I mean, you know, for me, even as as I say, not a huge Doctor Who fan, but someone who'd kind of been watching it since it came back. You know, I, there were references in that episode that I'm sure I missed but there were there were quite a lot of nuggets that did sort of resonate one way or another for me and and others that kind of you could you i feel like sometimes you can sense where something is gesturing to even if you don't quite know the details of the of the original sort of reference if you know what i mean it seemed to be done with a lot of heart and done with a lot of skill and so on and you're right absolutely that that paul mcgann short as a sort of extra little bonus element of the story um yeah absolutely sort of teases that you know the doctor that could have been and of course you know for you as as someone writing tie-in fiction you know this is sort of these are rich veins to tap in a sense you know when you do have well when you have a character like pike i mean up till discovery pike was one of these characters who you know had been seen on screen uh extremely briefly but had made such a big impression and number one of course you know made such a big impression that people wanted to uh you, you know find out more about these characters wanted to wanted to know what you know her name was they wanted to know more about them and to kind of fill in those gaps and i guess you know that's one area where the kind of tie-in fiction uh really comes into its own mm, yeah well um i've just been reading i'm, I'm writing an essay about a writer called um vonda n mcintyre and she novelized uh uh as, as well as being a phenomenal science fiction writer in her own right she novelized uh 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 the movies uh two three and four and her her novelization of of, of uh, the wrath of calm is one of those books that you mention it and people go oh my god that that book it's just you know it changed my relationship to science fiction it changed my relationship to star trek so i've been rereading them all i've just got to search for spock my god she pulls she pulls a good book out of her <laughs> 
a not a not great script. Yeah, yeah. That you're kind of reading them. They're going. These are these are far better than they have any right to be. They're they're terrific. Really, yeah. really, really good books. Yeah. You, you'd you'd be delighted to have to have read them because she has the space to. Um, uh, what what you're doing in a novel is is spending time inside a inside someone's mind. Uh, so all all the moments that you see very quickly, she has the the space and the you know the, the what a novel is meant to do, uh, spend some time in somebody's mind talking about the thought processes and so on. So they they really are wonderful. I, ha- I haven't read the one for the voyage home yet, but um, uh, the first two are just just extremely good indeed really good books um and she, she was a terrific writer so uh so yeah it's uh it's uh th- those are novelizations and um i think tie-in spin-off gives you a little yeah obviously it gives you the space to uh explore that universe a little bit more play with it a little bit more extend it expand it uh deepen it enriching it is enriching a word i think so <laughs> Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's interesting that you mention Vonda McIntyre as someone who you know has, has written, as Star Trek fans know, lots of Star Trek tie-in fiction, but also written her own uh, science fiction. Because I know you've recently sort of branched out, having started off really as, uh, working this kind of tie-in stuff. You've recently published um, uh, a book that was all you, you know is all your own universe. It is. Sense, yeah, uh, yeah. The Undefeated, which I, I read on my summer holiday this year and thoroughly enjoyed it. I loved it. The, the only thing is, it's 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 quite short. And I realised I'd, I'd run out of stuff to read oh, no, before I <laughs> finished my holiday. <laughs> but no, it's a fantastic Thank book. You. But I'm curious, um, what you know? How did you find it different approaching that? You know, not having because obviously when you do this tie-in stuff, I imagine. I mean, I know certainly with the Discovery novel, you must have had Kirsten Byer pinging you emails and telling you what you can and can't do. And there's a lot of kind of. Um, you, you know, you have to fit into someone else's kind of uh, universe and play by the rules, and and and, and there must be all these kind of constraints one way or another whereas presumably when you're constructing your own imagined universe you can kind of uh be let free if you know what i mean to, yeah you see that you see i find that like. i find that hard in it and maybe it's because i i, I mean I, I started out as a my first degree was in history and then i i kind mm-hmm. of trained as a sociologist so i've always okay. been I've, I've always been working with other people's stories if you if you see what i mean you know history is about mm-hmm. uh uh, you know getting used to a whole load of dates and what what people did and and whether it's you know causes of the first world war or causes of the dominion war or <laughs> causes of the ring war sure. you know, you're kind of uh, you're learning about that material and understanding the motivations and then i guess when you're you're doing field research in sociology again you're listening to people's stories and interpreting them so you're getting to understand their point of view and their perspective and the the the, the view of the world uh so i've always i've never i've never felt like a, 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 i've never felt like a blank sheet is is helpful or meaningful that I'm involved in a sort of active interpretation or um, responding to material. So I've always been in that mode. Uh, so so sort of coming up with my own stuff uh, as a blank sheet is incredibly hard work. That's why it's take me till my forties. <laughs> um, and and the trick in my head was to feel like I was responding to a a huge text that I was calling science fiction or the western canon <laughs> and and I, I guess i got to a point where i felt i was sort of sufficiently immersed in it that i could start responding to it uh was was the trick i had to tell so uh you know i know i know some people feel like they have to be uh not influenced or uh, you know they they have to let their genius uh 
uh, rain free but um, that that's not how I feel I'm always in response it's chipping into a conversation in some way well I think it's interesting one of the things I loved about the undefeated is that it's that sense of and and maybe this is where it comes from it, in in one sense it's kind of a small story within a much bigger story that you're kind of only vaguely glimpsed Do you know what I mean there is a kind of big sort of geopolitical kind of space opera type thing going on almost in the background and we're focused quite focused in and i think one of the things that um certainly all your star trek novels i've read that i loved about them is that they do tend to focus more on that they're not typical kind of action adventure novels if you know what i mean you you know we've got the tilly novel which is really a sort of coming of age story uh the never-ending sacrifice a great sort of cardassian novel which i know lots of people on the trek book club for example everyone votes it as their best star trek novel they've ever read you know and these are novels that are i mean in different ways it's not it's not that you're filling in the gaps in terms of like okay well we don't know for this six months what captain kirk was doing so let's make something up it's more kind of looking at different kinds of stories that you can tell within the star trek universe um and sometimes it does seem like it's looking for the slightly smaller stories i mean the the i really enjoyed uh your book enigma tales which um is set on cardassia but you know a lot of the plot is about who's going to get this job at the university i can imagine where you got some inspiration <laughs> for that one but you know it's actually really fascinating really interesting and it's the sort of thing that is quite um detailed do you, do you know what i mean and i think that is a real strength that certainly you bring to the star trek novels that i've read and it's it's an interesting approach writing your own um stuff i'm, I'm curious you know if there are going to be more set in the kind of the undefeated universe oh i, I certainly hope so yeah I, I feel like it's a it's a it's a uh a place that i've uh, you know, I've been imagining it for a long time. I think this is another. Uh, you need to. Uh, you need to feel uh, confident that you you've imagined a place fully. Uh, and I've I've been imagining that space and um, uh, the possibilities in it uh, for some time now. So certainly, I've got I've got several stories that I would that I would love to tell. Um, I've just just been working up an outline for one that I I would really like to write. So there's there's lots more. I have a I had a short story a couple of years ago which is. Um, uh, 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 set in that they got a shortlisting for the BSFA award didn't win it sadly never mind but um, um, but it, it, yes it's I feel like it's a world that I've sort of been building in my imagination and and so it's something that I would feel confident telling stories about um, mm -hmm. but yeah it, it's nice to um, I, I, I think with uh, you know I'm not a very uh, I'm not a very outdoorsy type I would quite happily spend all weeks just at home reading a book so the the thought of having to describe a space battle, it's like I can't even drive a car, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but so that, that's not going to happen. What does this button do? This lever? I don't know, shoot something. I think with a torpedo. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. But um, you know, um, watching uh, people gossip at universities and and jockey for. <laughs> Jockey for the deanship. That's that's much more familiar, um, and people will be doing that. And then I, I guess uh, Rugal's story and the Neverending Sacrifice mm -hmm. is uh, it's a coming of age story as well, I, I guess. But it's a a story about exile and not feeling that you fit in, and um, you know you've been you've been forced to go somewhere that you don't want to, and uh, which is you know I suspect a lot of um, teenagers or young people feel that way. And then the impact of a war. So I I, I just thought about. Uh, war stories that I'd read, um, uh, people I'd talked to or relatives who'd been through the Second World War, because the Dominion War is the Second World War, what it must have yeah. been like to be on the Eastern Front, um, you know, when the war ends, but there's just chaos. Mm -hmm. 
um, reading things like War and Peace and just, you know, that experience of a sort of devastating change to your world and, and, and just thinking about how that must feel. Um, and because I'm a sociologist by inclination, um, thinking about this sort of broad sweep of history and society and what that experience is like on an individual person. I'm always sort of shifting between those two, I think. And that's in the undefeated as well, I guess, that sort of broad sweep and then down onto a single person's experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I hadn't really thought of it in those terms, but it's interesting. I mean, you know, me too, like the the focus of all the work that I do, which is, you know, sort of broadly speaking history, but it's very much focused on ordinary people's experience of history rather than the, you know, quotes, important people. And I suppose that is one way of looking at at, uh, the never ending sacrifices that it is. It's almost like a sort of minor, not like a minor key, You, you know, it's a sort of counterpart to, uh, what, one thing I loved about it is that it does sort of fit in between the gaps and you do get little clues every so often as to what's going on in DS9 that we, you know, which we all watched 20 odd years ago, uh, at the same time. So it, it does slot very carefully into different moments, if you know what I mean. But it's, it's always looking at a different angle on it. Uh, I built up a sort of spreadsheet and a chronology while I was writing going, oh, well, right. I know that this happens and I, let's, let's watch that episode, episode. Oh, there's a throwaway line about, you know, the water supply not being very good. I can get a chapter and a half out of that. Because, <laughs> you know, what would that, what would that involve? Uh, your water supply isn't working. Does it mean there's outbreaks of cholera? Does it mean that uh, uh, how are they distributing it? Uh, is it uh, are rich people getting more? Is it is it getting to the villages? Is it uh, what would Cardassians do if there wasn't enough water? You genuinely can get, you know, one throwaway line if you just ask about how the Filipino army advanced on Reykjavik, <laughs> then, you know, yeah. then you, you, you've got to tell this whole story behind it. So uh, um, you've got to kind of tease all that out one way or another. Make, yeah, it makes sense. Of it. Well, I mean, you know, it goes without saying, I think, hopefully, most of our listeners probably have encountered some of your fiction. But if anyone is interested in any uh, Star Trek, or Doctor Who, indeed, tie-in novels. I think Una's books are definitely uh, a very good place um, to go to see some fantastic work. And I'm excited to hear that there might be some more in the undefeated uh, universe, but I hope that doesn't take you away entirely from Star Trek. And I'm sure for the Doctor Who fans out there as well, entirely from Doctor Who. Do you think you'll manage to continue kind of juggling all those balls as you go forward? Or are you kind of looking to you know, reach kind of exit velocity and exist in your own <laughs> universe from now well, on. Well, you know, we, we all have portfolio careers these days, don't we? So uh, yeah, I'm sure. happy to do, uh, uh, you know, if, if people offer me work, I'm happy to do it. <laughs> so, uh, no, I, I, I love doing books like this. It's it's enormous fun and uh, I, I enjoy, I, I really do enjoy it. It's it's sort of how my imagination works. And to be able to sort of then spin off into my own stuff is, is or to feel like I've got the confidence and the, uh, the, the technical skill to be able to do that is, is a really good feeling as well so um so yeah just just people keep keep buying the books and <laughs> that's the main thing <laughs> well thank you so much for joining me una before we go do you want to let our listeners know um where they can find you online or on social media or you know if they want to get in touch mostly i'm being grumpy on twitter and um uh, that's mm-hmm. just at una mccormack so nothing nothing complicated so uh, i'm mostly I'm, I'm trying not to get cross about politics uh, which is quite hard, um, but uh, mostly mostly I talk about books. 
uh, I try and talk about books, what I'm reading, what I like reading, retweets, uh, sort of interesting stuff that people say. Um, so that's that's usually where I am. Fantastic. Well, talking about mad men and occasionally women in blue boxes is not the only thing we've been doing on Trek FM this week, surprisingly enough. Uh, so here's a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, The Ready Room. Is this the supernatural Klingon episode? What is this going to be? And then it just turns out to go in, you know, go in and you know, dig your own time crystals, State Park. I mean, it's <laughs> like, okay. I Well, Larry, again, you know, he, you, he you, you go it. in there and you there's a like a, a basket type thing there. And you, you put in your 10 quat lose and you mm-hmm. get 60 minutes to dig your time crystal. Darsex. Darsex. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, actually, the Klingons want Darsix, don't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you go in, and actually, however many time crystals you can dig in 60 minutes, you get to keep. But the catch is, they're time crystals. So 60 minutes to one person <laughs> is only a minute to someone else. That- Literary treks. Uh, we have the conversation between Pike and the uh, the Star- Starfleet Admiral Terrell uh, about the specifics of why they were kept out of the war this is even before we're in a situation where they have no choice but to stay out of the war. They couldn't go back if they wanted to. By you know, sort of setting up the, the, the milestones in the story for this is about when this is happening during season one, uh, you know, that allows us to tell our own independent story within that. But yet also you'll always know where you are in the regular TV show. Earl Grey. That question about whether life exists Either yes, it does, because like enough time has elapsed and there's enough planets out there, or no, it doesn't, because we are that race. Oh. <laughs> that seeds yeah. life elsewhere in the universe. At the, some point the other the answer is it did, but they all destroyed themselves, you know. But that's that's also kind of unlikely that you'd have lots of civilizations all doing the same thing and destroying themselves, I think. But To the journey! <laughs> In the That's all I episode. can think about with that this one. Is, this is the Seinfeld in Space episode. I keep waiting for Elaine to show up. I'm trying to think of what Jerry Seinfeld would say in Jerry Seinfeld's tone of voice inside this episode. Can you do? Can you do, can you do a good Jerry Seinfeld? Oh, good grief! No, not even close. I'm trying to think how I would approach doing a Jerry Seinfeld impersonation. It's not coming to me. <laughs> He's got that super high pitched da 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 kind of. I don't know. Kind yeah. of voice. Well, that you did really well, the da-da-da-da-da. So, yeah, there you go. Why don't they just warp out of here? (laughs) And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. 
choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, PatronZone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook, and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at at Clara Jean MC and Tony at at AJ Black Writer. You're blended all right. <laughs>